Hello, students. Welcome to Late to Anime School. Today, we'll be doing a special foreign exchange program where we'll be talking about something that's kind of an anime, kind of not, you can argue, but it was made in America, Ruby. My name is Ross, and we'll have a big cast today with us. First, we have Ash. Hi. Sarah. Hello. Jennifer. Hi. Unique. Hello. And a special guest, Ashley. Yes, that's confusing. Hello. Ashley, how about you introduce yourself? Uh, well, I am Ashley. I am a friend of Ross. We met at RTX, a convention of the same company that makes this show. Before we start, there are a couple of ground rules for this episode I'm going to go over for everyone. First is, we're not going to talk about shipping. We will be doing a episode specifically on that at a later date. So we are keeping this on just the show, plot, characters, all that stuff without that. Second rule is we are not going to deal with any of the nonsense about Monty and what would have happened or whatever. We are going to look at the show as it is and keep it at that and not try and deal with all that ugliness. And yeah, so. I guess we'll start with, uh, how did you guys all get into Ruby? Because I got in because I was a fan of Rooster Teeth through Red vs. Blue, and I just saw the trailer, and then forgot about it, saw the black trailer at PAX East, and then watched it, and have been a fan since, but I'm curious about everyone else. I mean, for me, the trailers were coming out when I was in high school, so I was just hanging out with my friend Noah at his house one day and I guess he was already familiar with Rooster Teeth Red versus Blue I wasn't really and he just insisted that I had to watch the trailers because of how cool they were so saw them they seemed neat I watched them at the time and then promptly forgot about it until later in college when I remembered that oh hey Rooster Teeth is a thing and Ruby is a thing, and it's anime and cool. And then proceeded to watch it there and just like binged all the way through. If you want to go next, Ashley? I got into Ruby, I remember it was my last year of middle school, eighth grade, uh, when the yellow trailer came out and someone had sent it to me and said, hey, you actually look like this character since I had long blonde hair back then. And just, I watched it and just the colors, the style, the creativity of the fights and weapons and character designs really encapsulated me. And it just led me down into a rabbit hole of watching the other three trailers and eventually then getting excited for the show and watching volume one as it came out. And it has continued on from there to where it is pretty much the biggest show that I pay attention to. I got into Ruby. I already been watching like Ruby and stuff since like middle school i think we had started coming out i think it was my second year of high school and i didn't watch the first season when it first came out i started watching it at the beginning of the second season and it was because i like was mostly just watching achievement hunter stuff at that point i was like oh michael's in this i want to watch this because michael's in it and it's anime so that's how i started watching ruby and i Okay, so I you're talking what 2012, 2013. I'm a huge fan of anime. 
had no clue who Rooster Teeth was because I was in my 20s at that time. My friend's little brother, hilariously enough, his name Jeremy, not not the Achievement Hunter guy, but a common name. He's like, hey, you like anime. You really like anime. Check out the Red Trailer. So I checked out the Red Trailer. I think this was on YouTube at the time. And I'm like, holy crap, I've not seen anything like this, similar to this, nothing like that. I, I then ask him, I'm like, hey, who's who's this person who's doing this? Like, what is this all about? There's no dialogue or nothing. It's just animation and music. And it's really cool. He's like, oh, it's, it's done by this dude named Monty Ohm. He's done something called Dead Fantasy. It's a similar style of animation. I'm like, okay. It's going to be a show called Ruby. And it comes out from Rooster Teeth. I'm like, I... I watched the show. I don't know who Rooster Teeth is. Um, so I started watching Ruby as it was coming out through YouTube. And wasn't sold on Rooster Teeth until something that, as we all know, Monty Ohm pa- had passed away before it has gotten to where it is now. So kind of seeing how Rooster Teeth handled the situation, to kind of summarize, really made me look at, okay, what is this company and and how do they handle things and their other content and stuff like that. So Ruby in essence got me to see who Rooster Teeth was at that time. And now I'm just a fan of both Ruby and Rooster Teeth at the same time. Okay. So for me again, also like everybody, I also watch red versus blue before Ruby was ever a thing, it was Achievement Hunter. Then I found out what Rooster Teeth was, Red vs. Blue. I think I saw the Red trailer at the end of Season 10, was it? Red vs. Blue, but I didn't pay much attention to it. I was just like, oh, cool. And then I think it was the Yellow trailer that officially like made me, all right, what is this? I'm actually interested in this now. And then I didn't think I like watched regularly until like a few episodes into volume one and then uh yeah the rest is history i guess i also i also spend way more time than i'd like to admit like drawing certain like fan characters because of the way the everything's inspired by colors or mythology so there now that we got our base rules since we're doing a whole volume one to six recap in preparation for volume seven starting soon uh, i think we're gonna try and keep to a bit of a more scheduled podcast than we usually do where you go nuts. So let's start by just talking about all the stuff with the plot so far and the story in the world of Remnant. So when we're saying plot, are we talking from like initial start in volume one up to volume six, or are we saying like just volume six? Cause that's the most recent thing. I think maybe we should keep more of a focus on volume six mainly because that's what's recent, but we can talk about anything uh, we want because technically we haven't touched this show yet, but we're also all fans. So maybe we can do either way. Should we try to avoid a big spoiler stuff? There are no spoilers for this. Everything is fair game. We are watching with the assumption that you are preparing for volume six. So the only thing we're not going to touch on is uh, anything pre-release volume seven besides maybe the public trailer so 
nothing from RTX or Comic-Con, which I sadly didn't get to go to the panel of this year. So we shouldn't talk about the outfit reveals? Oh, no, that's there because that's an official trailer. Okay. Okay. Yes, yes. Yes, the outfit reveal, all the outfit reveals were public. The only things that were not public were the full clips of Chapter 1 from Volume 7 that were shown at both RTX as a work in progress and then a finished clip at New York Comic Con earlier this year. Correct. So, other than that, fair game. But in terms of everything that's come, go full wild. We're covering 1 through 6, so we can talk about 1 through 6. So, I guess, as the trailers introduce the characters, we can start by talking about Ruby Rose and how we were introduced to her in Volume 1, Episode 1, which the first season we're just going to put out there was literally six to seven minute clips because no one had known at the beginning how much popularity or how far it was going to go. So it was literally not full-blown episodes to what everyone's used to now with five and six. But Ruby Rose introduction, I personally, it was a cute way to kind of show where her story was going to start, which is funny enough with a robbery in a store where she's just reading a magazine and listening to the theme song, which is also funny. Yeah, I mean, like, with Ruby, I mean, really, if we want to talk about just her arc of, we start out with young, kind of immature, definitely sort of childish, even beyond, like, I don't know, maybe I was a weird 15-year-old. I don't remember being quite that level of childish when I was 15, but real young feel innocent not really sure what's going on but also just like full-on murder machine and now we just see the arc too she's still definitely like absolute death machine with that gun but also like seeing her grow into a leader and being like this fairly sensible person who's dealing with a lot of serious heavy shit like especially in volume six where it's just like oh yeah also you have a villain that cannot possibly be killed, and there's no way to stop her. And she's just keeping going and keeping her team going. Like, talk about a fucking arc. It is interesting that that's brought up, because from looking at... If you go even as far back as the red trailer, because that's the first trailer you see. It, you see you see this this girl you, you're not told what her age is at the beginning and it's like she she kicks ass like she's really cool and she knows it in the very beginning to see that growth from I know I have these abilities but now there are certain things where you can't rely on just that alone you have to have a point of growth and to see where that growth takes her is just insanely, oh, it's, it's good. It's just so good. And the fact that all the other characters have their own stuff later, but we'll talk about that later. But Ruby's in particular is like, oh, I'm a kid. I got, I got these real cool powers. I can, I can take down stuff. I, I know it. I got it. 
what's interesting is in volume one, I think she mentions it at some point. She's like, she just wanted to be normal. But for her to define what normal meant for her was kind of, to me, it was it was interesting to see that. Because she is a girl with extraordinary abilities, hence why she got put a beacon when she did at the time. The conversation about what's normal is actually something that's come up several times, which I think is very interesting. Because she's not saying, oh, I don't want to fight monsters. She's saying, I wanted to go through the normal thing at a normal age and get in at 17 like everyone else and not have this weird special thing even though I also wanted to go through it because it's so important to me and like in volume 4 that same thing happened with Yang with the question of back to normal with her arm versus the robot arm of what's her normal what should be normal and there's even some stuff with like how different dynamics change with characters of after all the hardships, they mention like who will be okay, who will, how will relationships in terms of just like interactions be affected by all the horrible things and how much do you have to change and move on? So it's kind of always that there's been an interesting progression with that word is I guess what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I remember when I, like when volume one, first came out I was only around 13 14 years old so I was close to Ruby's age and entering high school for the first time so seeing uh the Ruby at that time who was very socially awkward trying to find her way around this new place especially with an older sister that is grades above her which I had as well I really I, I really found Ruby to be a immensely relatable and realistic character then like I see myself in volume Ruby right now and just to see the way that Ruby has changed and grown throughout the series to where it was like she has gained a level of maturity but she still keeps her little quirky personalities and even taking a much more of a leadership role and owning her abilities also at the same time I also feel what kind of like Ruby Rose makes her kind of a different protagonist from other shows is the is kind of how she is our main protagonist like she is like she's special because like she's got the magical power she's a prodigy she got into beacon early she has these connections with characters but at the same time she's not so outlandishly away from all the other characters she still fits in among them and she can still like be just as vulnerable as every other character in the show and have just as high and low moments yeah, um, I agree. I guess, although, side tangent, I guess we're going straight to characters. That's fine. Oh, did I accidentally make that segue? Well, I mean, it makes a certain amount of sense because the plot is very character-driven. How could not to talk about Ruby without talking about Ruby? Yeah, and that kind of feels like how, at least to the Beacon arc of Volumes 1 through 3, of how things were very much more driven by the characters rather than the plot because around that time volumes one through three we didn't really know what the heck was going on because like we barely knew anything about our villains we just knew they were there what are they doing what are they planning we have no idea what's going on it's just kind of following around team ruby as they try to figure out stuff until it all finally comes crashing down in every field at the end of volume three 
That's a very good point because it is very much part slice of life, part drama with a lot of the school stuff. So if we're going from that, yeah, it is Ruby's story. So that is a good point. So I'm just being stupid. I, I I'm not I don't know. I wanna say the ending uh the ending of volume three happened a little quick. Not in the sense that it went by quickly. I can I think it was a bit too early for them to leave Beacon if that makes sense. I think part of it is supposed to be like the complete like we as fans were like, Oh, this is you know, like we're gonna they're gonna defeat the villain. This is gonna be like you know, typical like shonen arc. But, like, up until that point, I remember Ray putting on the Mr. Teeth website, he was like, the next couple of episodes are going to be very serious. Like, he put a warning right before the whole Penny thing happened. I mean, I, I understand that. I'm, I don't know, maybe it's just, like, the way I like a story's pace. Like, you know how, like, people sometimes compare, like, whatever show to something else to try and explain the point? From a story perspective, this is, you know, this is the Goblet of Fire, if Ruby was Harry Potter. This is the sign that from this point on, things won't be as, you know, brighter, as colorful as it used to be. But I don't know, maybe it's just the fact that because the passage of time is so unclear, it kind of feels like we didn't exactly know what exactly the stakes were, because we don't know what an average day in the life is for them before, before everything goes to hell. I feel like we kind of got that in those episodes of like the okay here's a mission where you're going off into the woods to collect sap and also there might be some grim and like that seems like a more day-to-day but i think the other thing about it is just sort of like the serial escalation of the stakes in the show of it starts with okay there's a crime boss and there's some sort of weird stuff going but then you defeat him and the dust doesn't get stolen. And that's like, okay, that's a thing. That's like common stakes for a kind of school-based show. And then it escalates in volume two and they go on the away mission and find, okay, here's a whole hideout and there's a grim breach inside the walls. And that's an escalation. And then it escalates to full-on grim invasion. And then to some extent they also break the shonen expectations as was remarked upon earlier of like expecting victory but it sort of makes sense as a logical like for every volume there's an escalation in the stakes i feel like it also reflects how the writing like was progressing when writers getting more comfortable themselves with the characters they realize that they can't make this show last they can't just have these you know like monster of the week kind of things like where it's like Don has a problem like for two weeks and then he deals with it and then someone else will have a problem for two weeks and deal with it they needed something that was more, like substantial a threat shows that team ruby like it all went in like yang is always like we're confident she see her at the beginning she's like flying everywhere like throwing on sunglasses midair She's, like, really cool, and then they all have to deal with these really, like, real consequences, and I think it's supposed to be jarring to us, like, how the fuck did this all go downhill so fast? Yeah, I feel like, at the same time, like, there could have been ways that they did things 
differently, like possibly giving mm -hmm. us more of insight with the villains. Yeah. And maybe more actual character interactions, like more stuff between Ruby and Pyrrha to put more emphasis on like the final moments of volume three yeah. where Pyrrha is killed. But at the same time, like I feel like thinking about it, it actually really does work with how it like how we follow around Team Ruby, we follow around our good guys. So when everything goes wrong and just it comes out of nowhere and everything happens, we feel like we are in the exact same shoes as our protagonist because like we didn't see this coming, they didn't see this coming either. We none of us had any idea what was going to happen. Yeah, I agree. Because what was it? In one conversation, I think it was Ozpin and Goodwitch, they mentioned that the villains aren't going to wait for these kids to grow up. And I yeah. think the idea of how much time they get at Beacon before it happens is subjective, but the idea of being ripped out is important. Also, just as a general, admittedly, pacing has been a thing that Ruby struggled to figure out the perfect balance for between each arc because... In parts, it's the nature of this production that it's a relatively small company doing this large animated project with all these characters and they're constantly figuring it out and evolving and they have to do a yearly show, which unlike, say, like an anime or manga where they just go and keep going every week and keep evolving, the fact that they're doing this seasonal thing makes it so that they have to have, we have to, in this many episodes tell a story and have a satisfying place to leave off for that and have a big fight. And that means we can only fit so much that's directly relevant. So like, as they've said in multiple interviews and at panels and stuff, there's so many things they want to fit in in more detail, but there's just not enough time budget. They have to prioritize certain things. Cause I believe I remember uh, it was talked about in the volume four DVD commentary was that uh, the characters Corsic and Fennec were originally actually supposed to appear in Volume 1 of the Emerald Forest, but because of timing and writing and pacing, they ended up holding those characters back until later in the series. Yeah, I mean, like, I understand why they do it, but, like, if you look at just the story as a whole, without those issues, it's kind of... If, like, let's assume in one universe, Rizzo Teeth is big enough as a shonen anime. I mean, it is a bit harder to understand because there's a lot of stuff that isn't properly explained either ever or you have to like watch the remnant even then some things aren't exactly clear i understand what he's saying because it's i think it reflects how at the very beginning this was this was monty's pet product like and rooster teeth was really still just you know the rvb company when this happened like it was more I think they, they definitely did not expect Ruby to take off the way it did. You can see that by how everything's kind of just... Like, Monty, like, threw in, like, anime tropes and just, like, you know, like, fan service episode, Like, not, no, not fan service, but, like, episodes where it was just, like, the plot is kind of disjointed. I think that they had to make up for that later. Where they have to start trying to make sense of things. Like, the world of Remnant in... Um, volume three was that we had all those worlds, the remnant where it was like every couple of weeks they had like a long one. I believe, yeah, it was volume three was where the world of remnants like really started becoming prevalent, and then that continued on uh, between 
volumes three and four to I think at least before volume four started since yes we were actually leaving our one setting and actually going and we're actually going to go learn about more of the world that this story is set in. There were also a few in volume two because I remember like back then uh, was it they had uh, Jennifer Hale she's the one who voices uh, Salem right or am I getting the name wrong? Uh, no, uh, Jen Taylor voices Salem. Yeah, it's Cortana. Yeah, sorry. Wait, wrong wait. voice actress. No, no, no. It was Jessica Negri who voices Cinder. Sorry, I was mixing people up. Because I knew that she was the narrator and she was a big voice actress. But then when she vanished between volume two ones and volume three, where Shannon McCormick took over, I'm like, that's weird. I guess they lost her. So that's why I know. And then obviously volume three revealed Salem. So I know there was ones from volume two. Sorry, tangent. Yeah. So they did have a vague idea of where they want to go with this series, but I think they expected them not have such like, a giant fan base that was like rabid waiting for them to give them new content. I think that they thought they would have more time to certain things out, and that's why in Volume 3 they had those World of Remnants. And even st- some of the stuff they've put in those World of Remnants have changed now. Like, even though, what was it, the one on the Faunus, where they're like, they only have one animal characteristic, you can see that they've kind of just... I don't think that one's gone, because at RTX, the After the Fall panel, Miles directly mentioned that, and he said he hates that they have that rule, and it's forced in, and it's limiting them, but it's there. I think that's maybe why, even though they say they still have it in place, because even when you can go to Menagerie, you see that these people definitely have more than a lot of the background characters definitely have more than one vice trait. Like the people who are in the water, they have more than just fins. They also have scales. But again, like you said, some to try and focus on the story and push everything else, sometimes a lot of things aren't explained and it can get I don't want to say condescending, but like a little annoying at times when uh, it's like it's like when uh, Ruby and Yang are talking to Crow about how they're real huntsmen and no, you're not. And then Crow's like, you didn't do jack shit. And then Yang says, we did a bounty mission. I'm like, what's a bounty mission? Like, can you explain that? Or is that something we just have to figure out? Like up till this point in the series, we're just told that huntsmen and huntresses are trained to fight Grimm and then, you know, humans fighting each other is just kind of a thing that happens. So can you explain what a bounty is? I mean, I think it's pretty self-evident that it's a bounty or thing. You capture one in person because they primarily protect their protectors. That doesn't mean just fighting Grimm because obviously we see them taking classes to fight other people. I think that's kind of self-evident, but also that's a problem just in general with fiction of how much exposition can you have? Because sometimes there's all these things and you have to explain them, but other times like this is a thing the world knows. And you don't want to do like an Isaac Asimov wall of text about how this one random thing works. That's why side material exists. And that's why characters like Jean Arkin finally exist. So that you have a character that, you know, hasn't really been exposed to everything so that they can do some exposition and explaining of things to the viewers in a natural way. Yeah, I mean, I guess all things considered, again, this is just my personal niche. Also, one thing that's sort of jumping back a bit that I kind of want to talk about with the, like, plot being kind of disjointed or pacing being a little weird or things occasionally being handled in less than good ways 
cough, the whole racism is bad way they handle it with the faunus is with all the subtlety of an anvil and not the best. But like we know that Miles and Carrie were involved in the writing from the beginning. I think the other part of this is just like the writers getting better and developing their skills through writing Ruby is that's why we see sort of the changes in how things in how it builds up is we're also just seeing their progression as writers and world builders and animators because the animation style does change dramatically over time yeah from volume one where you the focus is the main characters and everybody else is like a a, a little shadowy black figurine that's Oh god, the, the shadow people. The shadow people. To uh, remember now... the joke in Chibi? Oh, jeez. <laughs> the shadow people. So now where we have entire crowds and cities of people. Yeah, and like the real big upgrade in volume four when they have enough money to afford Maya and you just get the dramatic improvement. Yeah. So nice. But, you know, I... Just looking at one through six overall and what comes to mind is the whole phrase of art imitates life and vice versa. And honestly, Rooster Teeth from volume one to six, a lot of things came at them that they didn't expect. And sadly, with volume three, Monty Ohm's passing, like you, you, you can't plan for that. That's really tough stuff to get through. And they got through it, and now they went from like a, a small little group of people to now they got an animation department where they can work and handle this property and try to keep it going and make it as bigger and better as it can possibly go. There's definitely been a lot of changes that's undeniable in every way, including with writing. I guess going back to that, if you hear a lot of stuff recently, there are a lot of times where Miles and Carrie basically say like, yeah, there are certain things we did way back when that we can't ditch and we kind of don't like because I already mentioned the Faunus thing, but one specifically they said was like, we didn't use Shonen-style inner monologues. And then now they're like, sometimes that could be really good to get into characters' heads, but it's too late to introduce it. So... Yeah. Yeah. I think, like, they decided to stick with their guns on certain things, but they obviously have to shake things up and doing the things because that's why we go the sudden break in volume three and the world paradigm completely shifts and now ruby is split up we have following ranger it's a world traveling story instead of just in one city and everything happening there so yeah it's always evolving always changing and very hard to predict in that sense and i think also what they did with volume three with that ending and just the like sudden dramatic imposition of consequences was I think really really cool and sort of like a major subversion of a lot of shonen tropes in that like you don't often see consequences like that happen a lot you usually just get a like oh no they're beat up and they're covered in cuts but they survive and power of friendship and shouting at people and da 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 whatever something about Nakama or whatever and this you're actually seeing real consequences of people making mistakes of being in a situation that should be life or death and having life or death consequences. If you have however many people died in the fall of Beacon, you have 
Yang losing her arm. You have the trauma that they're all dealing with. You have Blake fleeing because she sees like her past in the white fang coming and fucking everyone over and thinking she's a danger. And there's just so much going on there. And this like consequence that you normally wouldn't see. That's this fantastic inversion of so many shonen tropes. That's fresh and interesting. Yeah. And adding on to that of how like consequences, they do not just go away. Like even now there are things, from the beginning of the show, from volume three, to things that carry over and stick with characters and the story. Yeah, there's a... The first thing that's coming to my head is in volume six, when they're not allowed to, you know, fly because shadowy character. Like, most people said it was Blake, but I got more impression that it was Yang because of what happened at the Vital Festival. What do you mean? You know, it... In volume six, where, uh, what's her face? The other Cordova. old lady? Yeah. Carolina Cordova. Yeah. Where she says, you know, you're not, we're not going to let you fly because, you know, this and that. And you and your questionable allies, yeah. to quote, to where, like, she does look over in Yang and Blake's direction. So it's like, it's ambiguous of to, like, it's probably more about Blake because we have that, uh, what's the word that. Like the Atlas Society is racist and yeah, built yeah, on exploited fauna slavery. We've gotten that little hint of nudge that Atlas is not really the greatest place towards faunus, but also the fact that things that happened with Yang at the Fall of Beacon are probably still following her around too because of how everything was broadcasted. It honestly could be both. Yeah, it could be all that because they, they like everyone still thinks. Yang literally broke some guy's leg on national television. Now everyone knows that Mercury is a criminal, so maybe not quite as bad. But what I was trying to get to is that with at least with Cordovan, they kind of established that she's not just racist, she's horribly xenophobic because she always says like how great Atlas is and all of you people are like monkeys compared to us. And that's just like at Ruby and stuff. So she's very egotistical. Yeah. So I think in that case, it could be either way. Or both. I know it's just like one thing that I that I really commend like the writing with in terms of character that I feel like is really a a lot different from other shows is like actually like exploring imperfect characters. Like there is no character in this show that is absolutely a perfect person. I'm sorry, Nora. No, I'm kidding. Hey, Go maybe. On. Look, you know that I would argue about this, but in reality, just like in the looking at it, all of it like there is no perfect character like we have so many morally gray characters characters that can like change be redeemed so it's just like nobody is perfect and it doesn't seem like there's anybody that is inherently as quote blake from volume one there's no actual pure evil because as we've seen from like any kind of villain that has shown up, even Adam and Salem, there were things that caused them. That's like it wasn't because they were bad people in the first place. It was just things that happened to them, and they just ended up staying on that path. For again, for morally great characters, for them, or at least like when someone who you think is perfect turns out to be not so perfect, is usually, from my experience, it's very like hit or miss when they try and pull it off well and i think i think a, a good example of that is probably professor ospin like uh, again our generation 
sorry to bring up Harry Potter again, but our generation who grew up with that book series knows like Albus Dumbledore was like the perfect person until it turns out he was a racist in his youth. And yeah, yeah, I I know this point, and I completely agree with it because I do feel that Professor Ozpin is an example done well of a morally gray like mentor authority figure that you know usually seen in a lot of these like shown in shows and just in writing in general like it's always oh they're always like so perfect thing they they're like they're so op they're badass they can do anything when it's just reality with ruby like we actually see and it's very like subtly and breadcrumb trail given to us that ozpin is in no way this godly op person that we originally thought of him as kind of like we saw him through ruby's eyes through volumes one through three of less like he's the headmaster he's the great headmaster of beacon like so powerful so mysterious when it's just like human like everybody else admittedly that's kind of one of my pet peeves is i'm not sure how great they handled the ozpin's flaws thing not because they didn't make him perfect that's good but just in that it feels like especially for volume six, they weren't making his shadiness feel as genuine as people were treating it. Like, yes, I agree. In volume three, the way they handled the pure stuff, definitely the way it was shot, whatever, definitely felt like oppressive. Like they say she has a choice, but it's not much of a choice. But it's kind of a pressurized choice, even though like they're trying to say like, do have a choice. Like you can tell me no. But at the same time, neither of us feel like you're going to actually say no because of this situation that we're throwing you into. At the same time, there's two other things like his lying about to the world about things like in a world where literally mass panic leads to a guaranteed attack by monsters. Hiding stuff makes sense. And I think the one that bothers me the most is the bird transformation and that that's treated like anything wrong because he gives them an awesome magic power that they can use whenever they want or not at all has no implications of any downsides of hurting them of doing anything to them it is just here is this awesome power that you have the choice to take and and not not even the pure soul risking thing and but then people are like how do we know that we only know that turns them into birds like, if someone said to you, yeah, I'm going to turn you into, like, you can turn into a fox right now if you want to. Like, would that make you... Oh, I shouldn't have used fox or else is going to say this. Okay. Nope. That's not, <laughs> nope. So, we talking animals now? Like... I mean, it's like, I feel like with Volume 5, it was spelled out in the episode that, like, Crow even says, like, we made that choice. We wanted these powers. And, like, Crow doesn't seem to actually, like, hate having this ability. It was kind of like, Yang and also, it feels like the entire, like, most of the audience got duped into uh, how Raven phrased it and Raven's blatant manipulation of her words because of who Raven is as a character. She does that sort of thing. Like, she plays things in her own self-preservation, so she would try to want to make things look good for her end. While I do agree with that, I also think it's probably also coming from the fact that how old were these kids when they were given those powers? Yeah. Like, did they really have, like, the mental capability to make that choice? Or were they thinking, oh, I'm going to become a hunter or a huntress, and I'm going to need 
power or like were they thinking like were they developed enough to make a decision that would literally change their physical form? And while definitely Raven is definitely like a manipulative, like I feel like even her stuff, it's supposed to like well, he was doing to like kids. That's the thing. We know there were at least seventeen. Yeah, we haven't gotten Stark backstory yet. So like we don't exactly have a timeline when this kind of stuff occurred, like if it was before they graduated or after graduated. I'd hazard a guess after, just because if it's such a big percentage of his power, as they said, like it's dwindling, and he's trusting these two people with it so much, I'm assuming he's had years and years. And the idea that they're only a kid, they can't think, is something the show has kind of challenged a bunch because of Ruby's pure soul and everything, and the whole thing about Hazel's sister, where Oscar's like, yes, she knew that she was a risk fighting, but she made her choice. She's capable of that. I don't think having awesome bird power is something quite as manipulative. And I mean, like, on that subject of, I guess, informed consent to bird powers, like... That's not necessarily age-related. Like, if you fully understand the implications of getting bird powers, you could conceivably consent informally at 17, 18, or whatever, or at... But if you don't really understand what you're getting into at 30-some, that's still not informed consent to bird powers. So, like, on the one hand, we know that Raven, aka Bird Mom, is, like, clearly biased and trying to push a specific interpretation of things when she's talking about the bird stuff with Yang because she's, you know, trying to get Yang on her side, trying to get her daughter to stay with her, even though Bird Mom is not necessarily the best mom. Yeah, Crow has a biased opinion towards Ozpin. He, up until the point with the whole thing with the lantern happened, he literally thought Ozpin could do no wrong. What we're getting there is two extremely biased opinions. Yeah, a matter of perspective. It's a matter of perspective. And it's like, I, I'm not one of those people that like all, always hates on Oppen. But I think it's more, we've seen time and time again, he's come at people who are interested, like with Pira. He's like, you have this choice, this is your choice. But, like, you know that if she doesn't make the choice, like, she knows she has to make the choice to say yes. Because what else is he going to do? He doesn't tell her what will happen if he says no. That's why I said the purer one is a much better problem than the way we're presented with Raven and Crow. I just think that's supposed to be like, Ozpin is very obviously had track record of being at teenagers with these big life-altering decisions, when honestly, like, most of them are just out of what we'd consider high school. Yeah. And I feel it's, like, it's been, I've seen it, like, discussed around of, like, because of how long, like, Ozpin has been this reincarnating immortal soul, like, he's still human, but at the same time, like, because he, he's done so much of this stuff, like, time and time and time again with no end in sight, it feels like he's becoming, like, a little bit emotionally detached in things. To where, like, oh yeah, he wants to give people these choices, but then he's really 
doing exactly what the god of light did to him and like not giving him all the information kind of just like kind of forcing him into this and you remember when they're at their orientation in volume one he gives the speech and i don't remember who says it she's like like he acted like he wasn't even there yeah i think it was yang it was yang so like obviously i don't know planned that out but her being like kind of Eh, with like something Oz can do and the way her mother turned out. I think that was out, but I think that's kind of cool. Um, but I just think that like Ozpin, like even though we're like he's supposed to be the good guy, he's a very morally gray character at this point. Like no matter how we're trying to push this, like these kids are technically child soldiers. Like we're not gonna skirt around that. Although. On the child soldier front, is that really that unusual for Shonen? No, it's that's what I'm saying. Like in universe, obviously, it's not that, but it's like you see how childish Ruby was at the age of 15, and his first decision because he's like, oh, she's got silver eyes, she's got a pretty good fighting ability. Let's, be, let's put her in uh, the leads with the big kids who are two years older than her. And we don't know how the training goes for those last two years. She would have gone to the other to the other school she was at. We don't know what she didn't learn. And they seem to suggest she could hold her own. And like to be slightly fair in terms of this is that while admittedly there is a bit more thing with the Grim and the training missions, for the most part, the idea at least seems to be you are learning, and then when you are an adult, you will be ready. Because the idea of like here, wait till you're 23 to start learning to fight monsters isn't viable. Like, in a world with monsters, you need to learn to fight monsters relatively early. Like, just how if you grow up in a more rural area, you learn how to, like, shoot a rifle and deal with assorted animals pretty early. It's like with Naruto, where they're teaching them how to be ninjas when they're five. But, like, I'm just saying that how mentally mature are they supposed to be? We don't see that. Like, honestly, in my personal opinion, everyone in Team Ruby, by the time they get into Beacon, all still pretty childish. Another thing I'd like to point out is, like, we're not exactly given, like, what they're supposed to be like as adults. Like, I mean, yeah, there's the crime boss and the professors, but they don't do... You don't see, like, the adults actually fighting until Volume 2, until when Professor Ubulek turns out, like, his coffee is also his weapon, as it turns out. So, there's not exactly a clear, like, for, for lack of a better term, there's not a milestone for them to reach, because we don't see two adults actually fighting each other until Crow and Winter. But that also leads back to the whole thing about everyone being flawed, because even the adults have a lot of issues from silly things like with Port to the serious things like how Winter is supposed to be super serious and everything, but she clearly has temper issues with things like when she attacks Crow and and obviously Crow's all drunk and depressed and Raven's a whole mess of bad mom. So Bird Mom is a bad mom. To make my rec- my requisite joke, they should put her and Relius into Blaze Blue Cross Tag Battle so both can argue about who is the worst parent. Ha ha ha. Anyway, back on. So I'm saying, like, yeah, the idea that anyone's ready or whatever for this is kind of hard to say when no one is. 
but also the god of light is a dick and gave Ozpin the worst job yeah, ever. Yeah, he did. Oh, yeah, yeah. no. The god- like, like, I like how we just all immediately just pile in on fuck the gods in Ruby because there's such That's assholes. That's why I'm more like inclined to being like really sympathetic with Salem now. Like she really got dicked over. Like there was no reason. And then she's like, alright, I'm gonna start a revolution. Fuck you guys. And then they were like, alright, so we're dead now. It's like we're gonna all right, it's like it's it's a uh, time to restart the earth. Except for this one person. Hard reset. Like with Salem, like there's a little bit there in that her whole refusal to accept death is like like sometimes bad things happen. Like you do kind of have to deal with that to some extent. But then the gods are just a dick about it and make it worse. Like Yeah, I just think that it was like it, like a severe but... overreaction to what she did. You also notice, like, if you if you go back and look at the episode, you notice how the god of darkness was so happy to finally have a worshiper. He's like, "Here's what I." She tells him, "Can you do this for me, please?" And he's like, "I finally have a worshiper. Here, go nuts!" Like he had no strings attached. He's like, "Here, have fun." Until the god of light. We need to bring balance. You you can't just do that. And it's just like, all right, fuck you. And that is always an issue with fiction or whatever, the idea of if you can bring everyone back, should you? Because then once someone's like, hey, bring this person back because there's a good reason, then it's like everyone's like, hey, why does anyone die? And then why does anyone ever do that? And what's the point in anything if there's no whatever? So the balance makes sense. And yeah, it's just the idea of with Salem, it's understandable what she did, but she basically tried to manipulate the gods to do something and the whole yeah took her like i believe like the like the gods could have done so much more to actually like uh, like i get like why like because she actually tried to manipulate them to begin with to get ozma back they made her immortal and just like you know we need to teach you a lesson you need to learn the importance of life and death but then it but then they never did anything else they just made her immortal and they just kind of like just kind of threw her out in the wind and it's just like okay like how could you not expect her to get do something rash because she is in grief she she has anger grief and everything else aimed at you they didn't see the problem with giving her the power of mentality yeah it's like you could have done more it's like they could have done more to actually guide her and help her she needed a therapist Oh my god, we're oh, back hey. on that. Therapy! Yes. You know who else is on my list of characters that needed therapy? Fucking Salem. Salem needed bereavement counseling, actually. Although I'm not sure That's if therapist kind of therapy existed back then. And then with the new humanity, there's not going to be anyone left for that. But yeah, the gods have that really arrogant, like, we want to teach you a lesson. But then they, like, just expected, oh, you're going to learn on your own about this. And then the, she brings an army and they're like, oh, you didn't learn. And then they wipe out humanity and leave her and go, humanity is a failure because of you and what you do. So you're alone. Humanity's going to come back. And now we're going to cast judgment if they bring us back. Well, this immortal thing that we created knows a problem and ignore keeps being there. Yeah, it's just kind of like the gods were like looking for perfection. It's like as soon as they saw one little imperfection, they're just like, meh, restart. And we're just going to bye and it was just like they also it's just like i again we're all gonna jump on the god of light and everything about how like 
he really just put Ozpin between a rock and a hard place of just like, okay, you need to unite humanity and bring these four relics together so that I can come back and judge you. But also, uh, the person standing in your way is someone that we made immortal, the love of your life, and she, like her anger and grief has been, like, it's been times a thousand because, in her sadness, she tried to put herself in a grim pool, thinking that would work. So it's just like, you can't kill what you need to get. Like, there's no way to kill Salem unless she gets her immortality taken away. But you need the gods to do that, and the and summon the gods back they'll judge remnant and destroy it so it's like didn't really leave much room for a plan also on the subject of bringing the gods back like what is the perk to having them back even if they do judge humanity to be okay like what well, do you that's get them for that? over judging their self-importance isn't it they think that it's just like oh then you guys get magic back Woo. But it's like, what else does that fucking do? <laughs> like, what else does that do? There's no reason to bring you back. But I think that's also because it's like, they're they're overjudging the self-importance. Like, that's their fault. They think they're more important than they are. Like, you really think a whole society of people who's never even heard of your asses is going to, like, bow down and just start following your religion? I mean, they do know the story in general. Like, the brother is uh, one of many things. But uh, in regard to that, they do mention that like, humanity will be whole, which, like, I don't know what that means. That seems like very vague nonsense. Yeah, it's also unclear, like, how different magic is from semblances and aura. So it's like, did people not have those two when you know, the first time humanity was? Or was it just, like, no semblances, but just magic? That it's it's also yeah it, that's another thing like about restoring humanity. It's not exactly clear how different magic is from a semblance. Like if somebody has the semblance to fly, that doesn't make them all that different from a maiden from in that. Wait, I have a thought. What if all of the like semblances and aura and stuff? is basically just, like, tiny remnants of magic from the initial four maidens. And yeah. then just by virtue of it, you know, spreading throughout the populace, as any genetic trait will, given enough time and... You mean just, like, as the maidens okay. just had more kids, they they continued to just spread their kids farther and farther out until today? Did those four kids that Oz paid her had died? They died, right? Those four little girls they had to die? I'm pretty sure die? it's implied that they were killed. That makes me so sad. I remember watching that sitting there and I was like, oh no! Oh no! Did they don't see anything, but everything explodes and there's rubble everywhere and we don't see them really run off. So... Yeah, and it was just like, it was It was also, you know, had the classic uh, thing in storytelling where just the child's boy is left behind. And it's like all beat up and torn. They did have that little doll. To symbolize like oh, the I'm childhood, fucking sad because that is generally storytelling. And it, like going back to uh, like semblances and aura stuff, I believe it was in that same episode of Lost Table uh, when Jin was talking about how like Ozma had returned, and without the gods, humanity was but a fracture of what it be. So it was like without like the gods' blessing or anything, like nobody could actually have that full magic. 
but it's like their souls still had like a fracture of that ability. It was just the way that I guess I guess it's just, it's implied that it's the way that humanity evolved again to where it's just like they couldn't be what they once were because you know all powerful gods are gone that don't have that gift anymore, but we have a remnant of it. It is kind of interesting though how you end up with convergent evolution and get humanity again after they've all been killed. Yeah. I mean when you have that line from the beginning born from dust like it seems like maybe it's remnant uh, and like the remnant like you're saying rep yeah remnant humans didn't evolve from monkeys i mean there's something i don't know like is it dust as in all what was left over from when the god did or god of darkness did his big planet wipe is it some thing with related to their magic is dust connected it's they definitely intended for humans to be a thing again because that's why they put him on that remnant. They're like, you need to, you know, do this for us. Wasn't that after they started? I also just kind of interpreted the whole dust thing as, like, possibly biblical allegory. Yeah, I was also yeah. going to say that probably just biblical. Because, like, the whole classic from, from dust, dust to, to dust. dust. Yeah. When humanity came back, I just assumed, like, basically everybody just has, if this was the Marvel Universe, everybody's a mute instead of having magic. That's probably a good way to look at it. Although, was, I think we kind of got off topic, but back to what the original thing was about the difference between magic and semblance stuff. It just seems to be like a general thing where anyone can do it and can control all the elements and can fly and can use supposedly greater power than most people can. You also don't have a time limit of power of your soul it's just there until like you keel over whereas with like a semblance once your like aura runs out your little protective shield once that runs out you can't do anything whereas with magic have a cool down. as seen by like amber in like, volume three like even though her aura was completely knocked down by cinder she was still able to use the maiden powers magic and fight on and fight still Almost makes you wonder if, like, the Schnees are connected to the Maidens through some descendant thing, because their glyphs are the most traditionally like magic. Yeah, because they're the first time we've seen them have a semblance that's family, like, granted, passed down. Yeah, and I suppose the other thing I'm sort of curious about with the Schnee semblance is, I think, in the white trailer, actually, I mean, this could just be, like, a discontinuity, but you see... Weiss use her semblance after her aura is broken because like that's when the Armageddon like cuts her face yeah I think like also that's one thing that gets a little tricky sometimes with Ruby is your aura can protect but also you also have to activate your aura to protect yourself from those hits and it's like you can heal those hits with your aura so it, it gets into really weird territory, so where it's just like, you could take a hit and get like a bloody nose, but then use your aura to heal it. So it is a bit of a tricky area sometimes with Ruby that sometimes isn't made exactly clear. Well, maybe it's something like passive aura and active aura. Like, passive aura would be the aura that they use for like, you know, protection healing, and then there's active aura, which is like semblance action. Yeah, because it's like, 
I know it's like in volume five because like we have Oscar as a character tool to, you know, give this exposition is he keeps being taught you need to activate your aura to protect yourself. To where it's just like I the way that Ren puts it, like we see in the training with Oscar that is that when training to be a huntsman, like your aura your protective aura like is unlocked to where then your body can keep up that defensive aura to heal yourself, protect yourself from hits like that. Again, it really tricky. It it gets into tricky area sometimes, like a fine line of like, wait, do you have to activate or don't you? And also, like some people have more aura than others. Like Jean apparently has more aura than other people. Jean's an ocean. That could just be because of his semblance, or is that because he just got born with more aura? Yeah, just sweet person. Does he just unnaturally just have a an, like an unnatural amount of aura? Like, is John naturally a battery, or is it because he has the semblance that lets him share that aura with everyone else, he is then also a battery? That kind of also goes into how, like, they connect it to where your semblance could possibly be linked to your personality, or your personality is linked to your semblance. So it's just, like, who you are as a person can link into your semblance and your aura, and what makes that. So I guess the quick thing with the, was it the Weiss? It's also possible since she was young when she did it, because it was at least before Beacon, she was not experienced enough to guard that one perfectly, even if her aura wasn't down. Because like we've seen, like even Sienna Khan got one shot by Adam, even though she's a fighter, because she wasn't prepared. Yeah. Of like if she didn't have her aura up. Although also like one of Adam's things is just like charging up enough to cut straight through an aura. He also didn't get hit in that part to charge up, so. That's true. But can't, but can't, I'm pretty sure I thought it was confirmed that he can charge his sword and keep it. Yeah, because, like, if he could hold a charge, like, his little sword capacitor, someone could just have been punching him in the, punching How good him is in the sword Adam repeatedly. Sword's battery life? How long can it hold a charge? <laughs> Not as long as Raven's, because Raven is boss. Fucking Raven. Yeah, I guess one thing that another kind of nitpick is that aura kind of not just the things we said, but like in general, it kind of has this weird plot armor thing where it'll last as long as it wants. And then once it runs out, characters are in danger. So sometimes like Ruby will get knocked out with a single kick. And then sometimes she's tanking hits through walls. Sometimes like the tournament, a few punches takes people out. Other times they go through like grueling fights over and over and there's nothing and it is like i think that's kind of an issue with something like this where you give sort of a number to things like that yeah i feel like maybe should possibly uh bring back you know a thing where you know your teammates can actually see your aura lit on your scroll so that you know you use it to be strategic you know if you want to go offensive or defensive so it's like, I feel like that's maybe something that should be like reintroduced with the scrolls is like maybe just at least every once in a while, like have characters actually monitoring aura levels, whether it's their teammates, just like a passive look at it, just to show that, you know, we do have a gauge on how, like how much aura can a certain character spend before they're gonna run out and how many hits they can take. Yeah, because like to some extent, you can follow the like differences based on like, People have differing levels of aura, so like just like you might have different levels of HP in a video game, that could be yeah. part of it. And then also like however much power you can 
put in your punches. So like if you have someone getting punched three times by say Hazel, that's probably going to do a lot more times than someone getting punched three times by Ruby because she's not that good at punching, even though the, even though she's slightly better after learning her lesson in volume two. I mean, obviously in any drama or shonen or any action thing, plot armor is a thing where characters will be able to walk off any hit until the writer decides they can't. That's just a thing. So sometimes they'll be taken out one. Sometimes they'll like get whatever knocked through mountains. So I guess it's just a weird like visual idea of it that makes it feel more inconsistent because it's not like, oh, they take this hit and they're hurt. And then sometimes they're not fighting spirit. It's at this point, you're out of power and you're injured. You can be injured. So I, it's just like it feels like an odd kind of restricting choice that leads to nitpicks from like, oh, why did this happen? Yeah. Although you can see it kind of well in, I think, volume five with the fight in what beacon? What's the the one with Leonard? Hail, Vale, something. Haven. Haven, thank Haven. you. Haven Academy with the fight there when Weiss's, like you see it get depleted from Vernal's efforts. And then Cinder's just like, oh, okay. Chuck a spear and it just goes straight through her. Oop, retarget. Yeah, like that's one of those things where it almost makes like, yes, it still kind of fits the plot armor of like, hey, it holds until it doesn't. But it's in a way that makes sense of like, sure, you can keep tanking the things because you have your convenient magic shield. But then once it's not there, reality ensues and you can get a spear thrown through your abdomen and proceed to start dying, except not because you have convenient battery, John. I meant more of like how long the magic shields last. And admittedly, that's fine for Weiss because Weiss has been established to be very squishy. So... That one's fine, but sometimes it feels like Yang can take crazy hits, and then sometimes she can't. But like getting knocked out by Neo in one throw. Was it really one throw with Neo though? Because like Neo was definitely hitting her a bunch. She was totally like slowly. You don't have a gauge to how strong Neo actually is. Because like she was obviously fucking terrified of Raven, but like Yang wasn't like a thing like she wasn't scared of fighting yang even though yang is shown to have you know it's her thing that she punched hard so but if you can't land a hit that creates problems yeah can she punch harder than a paladin or throw harder than a paladin's punch yeah and it's like we've actually gotten a kind of a gauge of neo skill at this point because of how the fact that she can go toe-to-toe with cinder who's got maiden powers like she can keep up with her and even like really have more of an upper hand because of the way that Neo fights and just who Neo is more as a person. Cinder didn't really have her weapons or her powers most of it. She was mostly doing it hand to hand because she didn't want to uh, fight Neo. But like Cinder has been established as extremely capable already. Yeah, she's a skilled fighter. So, and it's just, like, giving her maiden powers, like, yeah, she's definitely got more power in her arsenal. But even with that, all that power, it's, like, there's still somebody that's her, and that could be Neo. Can I say something that I just thought of, like, just came, like, out of nowhere? Go ahead. When I was thinking, 
you know how after Cinder, like, lost the battle, you know, she fell into the pool, and they're like, should we go get her? And Salem's like, no, her lesson. Is that supposed to be a parallel about what the gods did to her? I don't be. know, but I that's a good thought. about that. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. Because, like, yeah, just let her go do whatever. And now Cinder's basically like, fuck her. We're gonna do this together, Neo. Yeah, I, I think it's just, like, the way that I saw it was that, you know, Salem kind of gives Cinder a little bit of special treatment because she's becoming their maidens. But, of course, you know, Salem Salem's, like, a master at using people. So she knows exactly how to manipulate each one of every of her followers, especially Cinder. But, you know, Salem can't get what she wants if she can't get Cinder to accomplish anything because of the way that Cinder goes about things. So the way that I saw it was like Salem was like, well, that she can find Cinder whenever she wants. So she's like, if Cinder's going to actually do this for me, then she's going to learn the hard way. I just think it's funny because I think maybe she is underestimating Cinder's spitefulness. Like, the way the gods were like, she learned her lesson. Even if it's unintentional or not, I think that maybe that's supposed to be a parallel there. Like, she th- she has more control over Cinder than she actually does. Because time and time again, Cinder has shown that, like, even if she's told to do something, most of the time she'll kind of be like, she'll be overconfident. She'll get cocky. She wants to, like, she wants to do things her own way. Like, she still has it out for Ruby, even though it's like, Ruby is inconsequential, like, quote, unquote, inconsequential to Salem. Yeah, so it, it's like, Cinder is given all of these opportunities to become stronger and become, like, the like a deadly force for Salem, but because she is so adamant about not adapting anything, she just... Cinder just thinks that she can be all powerful and she can be unbeatable. She's perfect. So then when she gets like knocked down like by Ruby and then again and then by Raven and now almost by Neo, she gets pissed off about it. And it's just like, well, that's because you're choosing not to adapt, Cinder. You're thinking that you're just all powerful and that just because you're with Salem and because Salem is giving you power. I really you, hope that we you're get perfect. Cinder's back soon. Because we got a taste of it in volume. What is it? Like that whole no, it's the episode with them with with um Amber. Volume three. Volume three. Where it's just like you're like the whole thing at the beginning where it's just like she's like, oh like she was born for greatness kind of thing. Yeah, she's like, I want to be powerful. I wanna be feared. Well, I think like all four of Salem's like subordinates need backstories. Yeah, they all... We know Hazel. Maybe... Yeah, we basically know Hazel's. I am interested in learning more about, like, Watts and Tyrion. I don't know. Calling that a backstory is stretching it for me. I also kind of think it's really annoying that he's like, so this person who controls the Grimm and all this stuff, and your sister died on a training mission, which probably involved Grimm, you're going to work for her because of... and kill the guy who made the school, and it's obviously the guy's fault. And yeah, that's just stupid. Alright, so one of the things that I've noticed about a lot of the villains is it seems like, pretty consistently, the thing that makes them extremely villainous, or is, like, one of their fundamental flaws, is that they're always so, like, laser hyper-focused, way the fuck too much on one thing. Like, with Cinder, 
she's just laser focused on killing Ruby and getting revenge. With Salem, she was just laser focused on getting Ozma back and fucking over the gods. With Hazel, he's just laser focused on getting revenge on Ozpin for his sister's death. Like, that seems to be a theme with the villains of they have just this one thing that they care about to the exclusion of all else, and they don't give a fuck about anything else. They don't care about any other consequences to others, to themselves. It's just all about that one goal above all else. And to add, Emerald also has basically explicitly said the only thing she cares about is repaying Cinder for rescuing her, even though they kind of established that it's a complete one-sided respect that she's being used. Oh, yeah. Cinder is so heavily exploiting Emerald, and it's so bad, and it's so sad. She's really upset. She's so in denial. Yeah, and, and Mercury's like, dude, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, she's obviously using the both of us. Yeah, Mercury's just a dick who just, I guess, doesn't care. Mercury's like Torchwood. He's like, I'm gonna survive. Well, with Mercury, he's a dick about it, but he has a point. Yeah, but also, like, he knows he's being used. So, like, is he like, I don't care, I get to kill people about it? Or is it a... Uh, fuck it, it's gonna keep me alive. Yeah, I think he's probably just the oh, well, I can get power through her. Through power, I'll live longer. Or recover the, the semblance I lost. Or rec- that, I want more explanation on that. I want an explanation on that. How the fuck did he just take away the semblance? Like, what happened when he died? This is like, it's like, all for one. Does he just get to keep it go somewhere when he died? I imagine if it's a stealing semblance, it went with him. But I don't know if it's a can use all the semblance at once thing, because that seems way too powerful for Mercury to kill. If he could, like, stockpile semblances. Again, not explained that properly. That's just a one-scene backstory thing, so we can't expect an entire exposition or entire Marcus Black thing from what we got. I think it's more because they brought it up again last season where he was like, he took my semblance from That was the only time it came up, the semblance thing. Yeah. I just think for whatever's going to happen, because they are, like, secondary characters in this plot, they are going to need to explore their motivations a bit more for this to I have been hinting for Emerald and Mercury. It's just like, I, I hope that we get more a bit farther than just Oh, we, like, go back to him and, you know, Tyrion's being crazy with his, like, overzealous love for Salem, and then they're kind of sitting there not knowing what to do for two full seasons. Also, I really want a redemption arc for Emerald, because she's just a poor girl, caught up, and she deserves it. She also murdered a penny. Well, 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 you know, she did. She did murder Penny. I can't, I can't excuse that. But, like, still. Like, we all think she's gonna come back. Like, they have to bring her back. can, because she's a robot. I mean, they don't have to. Like, yes, they can, because she's actually a robot, but they don't have to bring her back. Just, like, Pura's dead, and she's staying dead. Like, the difference between Penny and Pura, though, is Penny was shown to be a prototype robot for something else they were doing. 
So if we don't see Penny, we'll probably see someone else that is like Penny. Because you see her dad at the end of Volume 3, and he's, like, angry and stomp on the on the side of his chair. He's upset that she got ripped to shreds. And, like, so would he have it out for the Atlas Army and Jokshini with, like, ruined my creation? Or, like, like who would he blame for something? At? Because even Penny's like, well, he didn't really want to be here. Oh yeah, that's a good question. Who would he blame for his daughter's death? Like, yeah, I had a theory about that, but I'll. No, no, this is the time for theories. Tell us. So, Penny, I think I don't know where I read it, but Penny's supposed to be based on Pinocchio, right? Yeah. So that old dad, grandfather, whatever he is, is probably Mr. Geppetto. Yeah. So, my theory was that Penny was a real girl that died at some point and I don't know as a deal for as a deal for helping out with the military and order of the phoenix Ospin brought her back after they rebuilt her body with magic he I mean after they rebuilt her body cybernetically he used magic and brought her back from the dead I don't think he can do that I I think it's also implied in volume 3 that Ospin did not know about Penn because of Iron like, he goes, he's like, wait, I, I can explain about the kit. I can explain everything. And it's just like, no, you can't. Yeah, Osmond didn't know Penny was a robot. Is it going to be like, because if he blames everyone else for what happened to Penny, because it's very heavily implied, he saw her as a real daughter, not just a piece of military technology. Is it going to be like, he's going to go looking for a blue fairy who can help him. And is that blue fairy going to be safe? Blue fairy. What about Jin? Or uh, Jiminy Cricket. Jiminy Cricket, yeah. Like, is he gonna look for someone who can help him? That would be a good motivation to, like, you know, fucking over the Atlas military. Yeah, I've seen, like, the theories that perhaps, like, Watts had something to do with, like, the real Penny, like, Dr. Polandina's, like, actual daughter before Penny, the robot, was made. Like, that's why Watts is a disgraced Atlesian scientist. Because something happened with that. Isn't he supposed to be Frankenstein? Uh, I th- believe uh, Arthur Watts is supposed to be based off of, uh, like, Watts, you know, Sherlock Holmes stuff. Oh. From the way you phrase that, it kind of sounds like, you know, Astro Boy's real dad and not the I think we're going to get some stuff with Watts because we're an Atlas, so we'll probably learn a lot more about yeah. him. I am excited for Watts and misadventures in atlas just because i think they're they're such an interesting duo and it's just like i think it was ever since like watts built Tyrion his new tale like there's been a dynamic shift between the two but you're right do you think he maybe had something to do with penny then does he seem like the type of you know experimental science that could put a human soul in a robot body some kind of accident maybe or not an accident and some evil science. Good old mad yeah, science. Yeah, that, that is also possible. Or is Penny just a Detroit become human-esque android that just got a soul, quote-unquote, by being alive, they say? They say they put an aura in her, or she could generate her own aura, and aura equals soul, so... Yeah, and then Crow in Volume 3 implied he's like, when General Iron was talking about the aura work that he's done, he's like, yeah, you found a way to take it and cram it into something else. 
where it's just like I think it felt like it was supposed to imply that yeah, you took somebody's actual aura and you put it in Penny. So it's like Penny's aura was somebody's real soul that you took and shoved into a robot body. Ooh, and you know what? That's making me wonder with the context of like using the fancy Atlas life support tech. I wonder if like maybe it was someone who was like critically ill and like only sustained by life support. And then they were able to like transfer it to a robot body as a like where it's less an evil thing and more of a like, I guess, full body prosthetic in a way. Yeah. Like something more like ghost in the shell, except instead of brain in a case, it's soul in a jar into the cybernetic body. And not played by Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it was actually now I think about like this reminding me of Igis and Labrys from the Persona series, where there's the same thing of they're being based on girls who were in a hospital and they were developed as weapons capable of having their own souls, in that case, manifesting personas. So it seems like it might be something like that. That wouldn't be surprising because it's very similar. So what topic are we on now? That's a great <laughs> we went on a whole tangent. We've gone everywhere and anywhere. We went from starting points. We went from semblances. We went from the God of Light and Dark, which I call the bros before everybody else people, because they were like, oh, bro, <laughs> like, Yo, she asked me first for this, so I don't know why she's asking you. He's like, yo, word? Oh, my God. Yeah, you're going to be immortal, and we, we leave it. <laughs> and then all that other stuff happens, and then they're like, no, we out. The way you're saying that, it's like the, it's as if the gods are voiced by Ice Cube and Chris. I'm just saying. It's sometimes how I interpret things. I think the fact that you grew up in the Bronx is coming through. Very much so. I'm telling you. And then all that other stuff happened, and they were like, all right, deuces, bye, we're leaving, bye. Oh, yeah, by the way, we're breaking your moon. Bye! That's it, we're done. And then that whole other stuff happens, too. Okay, but the god, the god of darkness, like, breaking the moon as he is, is the equivalent of just, like, somebody, like, person who's angry, they're walking out the door, they come back in and just, like, break something random. Like, just tip a glass over from the- <laughs> and another thing. He's like, that's what happens when I'm second. Like, I want to be second no more. Can I be first, please? Please? That was that part. He was just mad. But, oh, man, yeah. Everyone had to have a starting point. And then where everyone has ended up now, it's like, yeah, we're, we, we've got to figure out the high-stakes stuff and what is left for... I get, yeah, they, they, fo- they call it, like, jokingly, like, oh, we're going to save the world. Like, well... What exactly are we focused on here? Yeah, it's like, mm, I don't know. It's like the RTAA, dear dear world, do you want to die? Are you sure? Yes, okay, dying in three seconds. Three, two, one. Orange monkey eagle. Well, I'm dead. For saving the world, the like ultimate thing, obviously, stop Salem, clear Faunus hatred, unite the kingdoms. And racism. I mean, obviously that's like everything, but they're not, they shouldn't get to fix all of that. Also deal with the grim that uh, like, but yeah. So. Oh wait, shit, shit. Want to talk about something very silly and like not actually important at all, really in the context of the show, but kind of funny. 
mean, we've gone all over, so why not? So I read this thing on Tumblr where someone has a theory. That's always a good place to start. <laughs> Tumblr still functions? Yes. Barely. Basically, the deal with Jean and like why he's the way he is is that he's a like displaced harem protagonist put in an action shonen. That's funny. Blake's the harem protagonist. I mean, like, yes, everybody wants the Bella booty, but also the deal <laughs> with Sean, like, he's useless. He's surrounded by girls who are cooler and more interesting and all of that Listen, shit. I love Sean. I will not tolerate Sean slander in this house. Well, I'm about to. With his new haircut. I'm slandering him a little Jean. more. <laughs> oh, God, the haircut. <laughs> So could we segue into everyone's favorite characters that they related to the most? But 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 I want to finish talking about Jean as a harem <laughs> protagonist. <laughs> After Ashley's finished with a point. Go ahead, this is funny. It's not my point. This is me, like, quoting someone on Tumblr who's kind of right. In that, like, he is totally the harem protagonist. In that he's useless and everyone else is cooler and has to save his ass because he's useless. But... Because Ruby isn't harem and he's not just, you know, getting animated, he's shoved in his face constantly, then he has to grow and develop. And now he's actually useful and kind of cool. What you're saying okay. is he's okay. the Rosario vampire harem protagonist instead oh, of everything. Oh, God. Yes. Thank More you. Like no, like Caboose, where apparently he knows he's in a video game. And he Kirito. Anyway, I'm done sort of slandering, but mostly saying good things about John. I've seen Peter Parker be called a hair. So but also, okay. yes, Blake is Blake is the real harem protagonist because everyone wants the Bella booty. Also, when I was at RTX and I had the signing with Kara and Aaron, like before they started, Aaron like literally for some reason it made a joke about the bella booty and then started twerking <laughs> briefly nice. that was a thing that what actually game was this? i wish somebody filmed that because that's fantastic i don't know the actual day i want to say saturday i think i remember you talking about the signing on saturday so yeah that sounds right but yeah yep she definitely made jokes about the bella booty Aaron knows about the power of the Bella, Bella booty. She is aware of the power that she has as the voice of Blake Belladonna. <laughs> I guess we should go on to what Jen was saying about characters. We talk about like favorite characters and stuff. Is that what you mean? Like characters that you guys related to the most. Because here's the interesting part about this podcast. Like other than number one, I'm clearly older than everybody here. Duh. Because everyone's like, oh yeah, Rooster Teeth, RVB, I've watched it. I'm like, what? I don't know none of that. I had to catch up with all of that. Because I didn't really know that any of that was a thing. But other than like, because you talk about high school, middle school, I'm like, wow. So you you guys watch this around roughly similar in age to the characters of Ruby during the time. Whereas yeah. I was already past school. I was in college. And so seeing then, it, so. yeah, I was about to it, enter college. So seeing it from a very, very different perspective, it's like, yeah, we all have our favorite characters, but 
from volume one to six, was there like one character like I relate the most to this particular character just by seeing how everything has changed over time? So let's start with Ash. Wait, sorry, I got distracted by trying to look up when the original release date was to try and figure out. 2013. Okay, so yeah, junior year of high school. I was graduating high school and about to. Junior year of college for me. Yeah, see, I was working. <laughs> like, I graduated already. I was already, I think, in my second job, maybe, second or third job being home from school so it's it is a different perspective and it's interesting to hear that yeah there were different perspectives watching this show so instead of like just going favorite characters because we can go on and on and on and on about them like was there one character like oh my god like i relate the most to this one in particular so let's start with ash on that um i mean the problem is it's kind of changed over time like, initially, to some extent, I was relating a lot more to Blake with the whole, like, weird, complicated feelings about the past and, like, being kind of uncomfortable with the environment I'm in and feeling out of place and the sort of, like, sad, super serious, like, just, like, her, like, sort of edge of sadness, but always being really serious for a while until you, like, actually get her comfortable like that's me a lot so like I was relating to her a lot at first and then like now as I've gotten more comfortable and been like out and shit oh yeah for reference lesbian which anyone actually listening knew but our new person might not know so then like afterwards I was relating a bit more to yang because of the like hey i'm just like fuck it let's just live this is great now this is cool and kind of relating to that and now i find myself relating a lot to weiss with the like being aware that i come from a background of net privilege and like that shaping things and having biases that i need to be aware of and trying to work around it but like actually doing that effort and becoming a better person Basically, it's swapping around a lot. So far, I haven't really identified with Ruby, but that's because I'm just too tired to identify with Ruby because that girl is full of energy and I have never been an energetic person ever. What about you, Ashley? Um, Kind of hard to say currently. I know like when I first started watching Ruby, I very heavily related to John. And honestly, because like from then to now, like there's been a lot of change in my life. Like, just in general, and then of who I am as a person. So maybe it's why that I gravitate towards them as my favorite character right now is Oscar, as of like someone who's like being thrown into like a whole new environment. Like, you know, I'm in college now, and then I'm going to get thrown out into the career path. And it's just like trying to figure out like who exactly I am, especially among like a group of people that are in like the same area as I am like in I'm an animation major and it but it's just like and they say like you know it's a team effort and it's like I know it's a team effort but at the same time like it's like gonna do my best anyway in whatever way I can and whatever I can learn so I feel like that's kind of I feel so it's like before Ruby and John and now I feel like I kind of relate to Oscar 
it on different levels. Uh, Sarah? Oh, um, I, I have from the very beginning always related to Nang because, well, early on, like, when she's, like, really, like, upbeat and energetic, but she's also, like, really, like, not mature. Like, you don't see her as being mature, but, like, she's pretty mature when it comes down to it. She helps take care of me and stuff. And then, you know, having issues with your mother, I feel that. And then, well, like, later on, with, like, the law stuff of her arm, and I, like, I feel it. But I just, I've always related to Yang. Even including just punching to get rid of my problems most of the time. So there's that. Oh, I guess we'll go on to me. I relate to Neptune because I cannot do anything successful with relationships. Is that it? No, that was oh my God. God. <laughs> you just you're just gonna get a huge hug, Ross, is what you're gonna I'm get. just making bad jokes, it's what I do. But yeah. Um try and be serious, honestly. I'm I guess I'm not sure really relate to, but Nora really speaks to me. And obviously I'm not quite that same level of hyper insanity about everything, but just in the way that she can have a lot of horrible things have happened to her. But despite that, she like tries to be positive about it. And like, even without that, she's the one who has to keep smiling and keep being happy and, bringing everyone up so it's like it's not really something i relate to but more something i aspire to and wish i could do to some degree and i think i've maybe gotten better general about being that kind of like i guess energy to things even when they're bad but uh not quite there but that's for me it i guess fair so on to jennifer it's it's like a very Nora thing happening that you're hearing noise as you're describing the relationship or the related relatability for Nora to you. I'm like, oh, yep, that that's about it. Yeah. So I mean, as as you see on the Discord, like, yes, Yang. Very much Yang. But after hearing a lot of the conversations now that we're having about the show, I'm like, well. If, let's say, I was 14 watching this show, I probably would have related to Ruby, Ruby Rose, because it, she reminds me of, I'm like, oh, if being that age at that time, being a kid, being a teenager at that time, like, yeah, I had that kind of energy and like, you, you have certain innate qualities about yourself and you're like I'm going to use these but I don't know what they are 100% yet but I'm going to get there because I just want to be normal in, in a very starting point sense but since I watched the show coming from somebody in my 20s at the time I'm not 20 now by the way um, Yang spoke more to me because seeing her starting point is like she she has a little sister and she has friends. She has a social life. And then the more you get to see Yang's personality, like, no, she protects her family. She protects things that she cares about 
And even though at some point a life-changing event happens, aka the end of Volume 3, she has to reevaluate, well, what, what, what are my strengths? What can I do? And she has a very, a very real sense of, well, damn, this sucks because I don't have an arm. But also sucks is that my little sister's not here. And my dad is here. My mom sure ain't here. But what do I do? Like her entire identity had to be changed in a way. So Yang throughout one through six for me is like, I, I see her transformation, her changing, and yet she still maintained that I need to protect my family. I need to protect those who I care about and still be myself and true to myself. So Yang for me was always, always the thing. Unique? I don't know. <laughs> After all that stick about Blake, I'm kind of afraid to say her, but I guess initially it was just because, like, I didn't... I wasn't the best at socializing. I just... And I preferred tea over coffee compared to most people. And, I mean, on the whole racist thing, I was the only, I was the only not-white person among my clique in high school, which made it a little odd sometimes but nowadays i want to say it's probably probably Lyren, just in the sense of like trying to talk some sense into friends who are trying to do something ridiculous but i end up going with it anyway because why not in the sense i don't have a trauma nor am i an orphan but this is like trying to move on from things from the past that I should have either gotten over at this point or just like I shouldn't let it affect me. Uh, yeah. That got a little heavy, but that was yeah. very <laughs> cool to say. But I think we should probably start winding down now because we've been going for nearly two hours. <laughs> All those Woo! tangents. <laughs> Welcome yeah! to Ruby. There's so much. Get in the rabbit hole. There is a lot to talk about. I'm sure we have a lot to say. So I think just in the interest of time, we should just end it out on what are we predicting looking forward to in volume seven? I mean, my main prediction, I can't say because we aren't talking about shipping, but everyone who knows, <laughs> knows exactly what I'm thinking. Uh, yes, okay. I, I don't, okay. but I'm scared to find out. Wait till the shipping episode, people. I just want to see the Shni mother, because we met everyone in that family except for the mom. Oh yeah, meeting Willow is going to be interesting. I mean, we know she's an alcoholic, so is it that's... actually Willow? I thought it was Willow. Yeah. I thought that was just a fan name. I think it was... Uh, the name Willow came from the fact that an old uh, image that Monty Owen posted once that had a... It was basically a big old spreadsheet of character names. And it was obscured, but what people picked up on was that it could be, that it was most likely spelled out to be Willow Schneider. So I think you could see the, uh, I, I think it was like L-L-O-W, and then you could see S-C-H-N. So people just assumed Willow Schnee. And I okay. can't remember if they actually even acknowledged like her name in like DVD commentaries because it's been a while. Well, well either way, I'd like to see the mom finally. I'm assuming or hoping maybe We'll see that she was the real thirsty mom that Miles mentioned at RTX. Oh, God. <laughs> Wait, no, that would actually fit and make it not as bad as it could be because she's just thirsty for wine because she's an alcoholic. 
which is sad in its own way, but sad at least then we aren't getting... <laughs> yeah, FBI open up. <laughs> at FBI least then we are... <laughs> yep, at least we don't need God. I love how we just all appreciate Eldena double cast. Oh, also, I double checked. I also, quick note, I double checked Eldena double cast was the source of the thing I saw on Tumblr about John being a harem sex god, except not. Harem sex god, except not. Shout out to dead. him. That's what the god of light thinks he is. Does he? He doesn't okay. have anything that seems to you don't imply. Know. We've seen him make it. We know someone's written it. Uh, predict. I don't know if I like have any predictions for Volume Seven, but like I do know that because of how uh, I think it was. Can, can I say it about something that Carrie said at RTX that has been spread around? I haven't heard it, but go ahead. Just say RTX stuff because I think we've already kind of mentioned a lot of that. Yeah, it was just literally when they asked, like, "What are you guys looking forward to?" Which I believe was like public about it. Is that it's Carrie said small farm boy stuff and it's like i am craving some oscar development because i feel like they didn't really have time for it in volume six so they kind of had to skip over it a little so i'm excited to see like where oscar is going to go with things especially because it seems like oscar seems to be like special in the terms of ozpin's reincarnations like there's something different about him so i'm excited to see like where goes within atlas and how he's going to continue going forward with Ozpin and gaining his own strength, which I think is makes a good segue with how, you know, Oz is kind of taking a backseat for emotional reasons <laughs> and story reasons. But it also gives, like, Oscar a chance to actually, you know, get stronger and show his skills, like, on his own and develop those. So I, I'm predicting, like, something, at least something big will happen with Oscar, whether it's semblance, tapping into Oz, Ozpin magic, or something since i also mentioned the real thirsty moms which was miles's three word thing that was obviously fine so uh sarah i just i'm really i like world building a lot i want to see what alice is like i'm excited the architecture and obviously thing wise i'm also hoping something but i'm hoping for I'm hoping more development around the Schnee. Well, I think that's a given. We're going to get more development of the Schnee family. Because I want to see what the fuck is up with Doc. Because he's an asshole. But, you know. Why is he an asshole? Yeah, exactly. Why is he such a dickhead? Was he born poor that somehow got lucky? Yeah, maybe. Was he one of the people who's like, no, fuck, I don't know what class. Because I made it. Like Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> Scrooge McDuck. Scrooge McDuck has far more honor than Jacques Schnee. Scrooge would. <laughs> Scrooge would throw Jacques out a window. I mean, fair, <laughs> but I'm just saying, as far as the poor life and then suddenly rich thing. Specifically, these are Scrooge. Okay. So let's see. I'm gonna predict. Everybody in Team Ruby is going to have a new technique of some sort by midway, if not towards the final episodes. And I'm predicting Atlas, we're going to see a revolution. We might see Ooh, something sounds... go down. Oh, oh yeah. And yeah. Like, 
like we saw people throwing trash cans. That's def- that is the start of a revolution. Anarchy. I know revolution is starting when someone throws a goddamn <laughs> trash can. Speak- speaking of revolution, I kind of have a question for everyone. It's not really a prediction because I don't really care if it's true or not, but do you think Atlas is kind of like Elysium, the movie Elysium, where all the poor people live on the ground and everybody else and all the rich people live in that island? Oh, yeah, it is totally that. that. That's what I saw when they were going towards it. I was like, there's a whole lower part and there's an upper part. It is so totally like Elysium, except instead of an orbital city, it's a floating island. They need a Matt Damon. (laughs) No, I saw that design and I'm like, a little battle angel? Are are we are we drawing some? Because if no one's really picked up, and I don't know if they have a lot, a lot of, and I think Ash has mentioned this, a lot of the stuff has been influenced from other pop cultural references, other fairy tales, anime tropes, anime designs, even. So when I first saw that design of the above and below, I'm like. That reminds me a lot of Alita Battle Angel, and that had a very heavy, heavy-duty storyline that I personally enjoyed. And then, um, I don't know if the movie was very good, but there is a live-action movie of it. So, seeing as we have the design, we're going to probably get more information about Atlas. I'm just thinking, Grimm come with high emotional levels, so if we got a revolution going... How's that going to work for the city and what's going to happen to them towards the end? I'm going to predict that that's going to happen. And I guess I'll go. First of all, I'm predicting that despite the whole thing, I think they hinted that it might be darker. None of the protagonists or main good guys are going to die. Everyone always thinks it. They're going to tease it and have a big thing at the end of an episode where people freak out and then no one will die again because that's how it usually goes since volume three. But yeah. Um, also, I, or at least I'm hoping we see Team Funky again because they're an Atlas. Yeah, what, what does the KI st- I mean, we didn't get to see them. We only got to see Flint Cole and Neon Cat. Yeah. Flint and Neon are FN, so who's KI? I want to find out that, so hopefully we'll f- learn that. Um, are you sure you don't just want more cat girls in the show? I think is a specific fox girl. It has nothing to do with <laughs> What is that about? <laughs> OMG. Ross, the K stands for Kitsune. So there's a Kitsune girl. <laughs> oh my god. Oh boy. Leave me and my problem with Tamamo out of this. Okay. So I guess, I mean, we kind of already mentioned stuff. I think like if we do have penny stuff a real possibility is that the father will have done the i'll make another one and there will be another a penny 2.0 that obviously won't know ruby and that'll be horrifying and sad for her ruby's going to be so sad i'm ready to cry make me cry miles do it just stab me in my heart you've been doing it for years i'm re- i'm more prepared now do this annual. Think you are. Make an appointment. Also, can I add a caveat on to my prediction? Because I totally forgot about this theory that I had that I that I want to predict could happen. Is that Oscar can act as a skeleton key to the vault because of how Ozpin's 
the maiden's magic originated from Ozpin, and only each maiden can get in the vault. So it's like, like I want to predict that Oscar can act as a skeleton, and that's how they're going to get to the Atlas vault. So he's the lock pick instead of the actual key, you're saying? Why didn't why they need to look for the, stri- the spring maiden in volume five? Because they had Oscar, so he could have literally gone down to the vault. Yeah, I think because he wouldn't like, want to show his they hand. Don't know about it? Like, I feel like it's something that they wouldn't know about. Like, it's something that Ozpin would not mention. Like, as something that's played close to his chest of just like, yeah, I can open all the vaults, but I'm not going to tell anyone that because that is big risk. That's big risk business. So he's still going to be withholding information. You mean? Oh yeah, yeah, he's totally. I so. Okay, I am so behind this. I am so behind this. Either that or like they discover it. That is a good point. And then if they find they're gonna be like, we fucking told you, old man. We told you how many times we have as an old man. (laughs) (laughs) The Ashleys are in agreement. It's totally going down. Yay! Hell yeah. So right now we're having a situation that is ashes to ashes. Ashes. Those ashes, ashes, we all fall down because Atlas might, because it's in the air. <laughs> well, damn. Oh, God. <laughs> I feel it's like, like it's literally going to be, yo, my, I use my catapult to launch my turtle at your castle in the sky. <laughs> so it drops onto all your monsters. Maybe uh, Ironward's plan is to build a catapult to launch Salem into space, because then she is not walking the earth. <laughs> General Ironwood's big plan. We should take Atlas and push it somewhere else. <laughs> Ooh. The way you said turtle just makes me feel like a turtle fauna is probably just a ninja turtle, but you know, human. <laughs> Yo, Donatello! Also, the thing that I would like to know about Ironwood, how come he has gray hair on his head, but his beard is like full black? He dies his beard. Like, why would you dye your beard and not your hair? He just, it looks so weird. I mean, it could be just that his hair's only starting to gray and... Because, I mean, my dad, his hair just started graying, but, like, his beard is (laughs) still black, so... And also, why is everyone calling him Iron Daddy? Like, what the fuck is attractive about him? Here we go. (laughs) I mean, fair point. Fair point. Look, I'm gonna be ready to swoon when we see him in volume seven. I'm ready. Same. I'm prepared. Same. I'm gonna to quote bust a nut. God oh, damn, boy. this just went radar. Okay. Sorry, right, I'm Ross. sorry. Ross, take it away. Oh, I'm fucking thirsty. I mean, you this all went to hell when you guys brought in Tomamo, so just saying. I heard curse words earlier, so I thought it'd be okay to Nah nah, you're good, you're good, you're good. Fair point. <laughs> Ross made a fair point. All right. Yep. Okay. So I guess that's it for me. Uh, I think unique did was that all you had to say? Did you have another thing to add? No, uh, that was it. The, the Elysian thing. Yeah, that was it. So, yeah, I guess after all that, anyone who's still here after all this time, that's it for today. And it's time for our classic Wee Boo outro. Volume 7 will be out soon. So we're all looking for that. And yeah, so signing out, this is Ross Jane. Bye. Uh, see you later, taters. Um.
I'm panicking and I don't know. Okay, so goodbye, everyone. Y'all, y'all are weak weaves. Weak, weak weaves. Oh boy.